Listener Production. Evolutionary biology is essentially competition. It's exactly the same modelling that economists use for species competition. But they know in biology that trial and error gets you to a collusive outcome when there's no free entry, no matter how many players there are. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, if you haven't been around here too long and you don't know what it means, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and yep, the real stuff, which is exactly the aim of our podcast. And today's guest, as always, is someone who really does know what's going on. Now, you might have heard his voice before. In fact, there's been an episode of The Good Oil featuring Dr. Cameron Murray, but it was because he and I were on someone else's podcast. So let's introduce him up front. He is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney. And I love this this, uh, definition. I think economics could be much better than it is. So often write very fine technical critiques of economic theory and comments on the nature of the profession. That's an interesting way to start. So welcome to The Good Oil, Dr. Cameron Murray. Thanks for having me, Scott. Mate, it is my pleasure. I really appreciate you making the time, mate. You and I have uh, have been interacting on Twitter for quite a while now, and we actually spoke to each other directly the first time when uh, Matt from Aussie Firebug actually asked us to, to join him on a superannuation podcast. It ended up being two episodes. It was uh, such a long conversation. But, mate, I really, really appreciated the conversation, and not because of the reasons most people tend to like these things where you get in a room where everyone agrees with you. We actually had a really good conversation where we agreed maybe – 60% of the time, disagreed 40% of the time. But I, I thought, honestly, I, I really enjoyed hearing a different perspective. Uh, I know from Matt's feedback that his listeners did as well. And I just wanted to kind of spend a bit more time getting under the under the bonnet. You you write a blog called Fresh Economic Thinking. You're on Twitter as well, and we'll share that information a little bit later. But there's, there's a very... Uh, you're, not a, you're not an unconventional economist in the sense that you are a classically trained economist, someone who, who's been through the ringer, but you have a perspective on things that is very different to the mainstream. Maybe, I don't know if you'd call it an orthodox, different, um, fresh, I guess you'd call it, hence the, uh, hence the name of the blog. Mate, I'm just going to literally, just, just for the fun of it, for, for the sake of our listeners who haven't yet been to your blog, I hope they will be there by the end of this podcast. But uh, I'm just going to read a couple of headlines j- just to give people a flavor of, of the sort of thing you've been writing about. Just recently, I'm just literally going to read some of the stuff from the top of here. The main one at the moment is Australia's $40 billion of education exports is a statistical trick. Another one, the Auckland myth. There is no evidence that upzoning increased housing construction. Uh, you've got uh, fear of an aging population is age old. You've got carbon footprint is a conceptually flawed idea. I think, if, I think you've pretty much just annoyed and insulted anyone who, who had these views and assumed they could, they could necessarily agree with one and then not agree with the other, <laughs> uh, which again is, is what I love about, about what's going on. But that's the thing. I should say too, you've written a book I have not read, mate. I apologize. Game of Mates, or the up, I see the updated version is now called Rigged. Um, I, I am, I'm overdue to have a look at that. So I will, I will definitely make a point of, of reading that book soon. Can I, can I start, mate, just, just for the sake of finding somewhere to start? Now, what I want to do in this conversation is, if I can, just dip into a few different topics just to share with people some of your thinking and some of the way that you've been, you've been sharing. So this just hopefully kind of prompts some new thoughts for people. Let's go with that main one, the one that's on the, on the page written on June 12. Australia's $40 billion of education exports is a statistical trick. Now, 
I don't know. Plenty of people will tell you that education is one of our great export industries. We like to think we're the University of Asia. Uh, plenty of people will tell you that they want to have students and uh, you know come from all around the world and spend their money in Australia. <laughs> Again, an outlandish but probably accurate headline. Tell me why. It's a statistical trick. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it, it is true that there are a lot of foreign students and it is true that they spend money, but it is not true that we treat foreign students the same way we would treat, for example, temporary people with other temporary work visas uh, in the statistics because there is a carve-out in the definition for services exports, uh, which is an exception to the residency guideline for international students who are deemed residents of their home economies for the duration of their study. So essentially, even if they work here and live here for four years, um, just because their visa says student and not working holiday or tourist, we, you know, even though what we call their centre of predominant economic interest, which is sort of the, 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 the sort of definition used by statisticians to say, well, where should I count you as a resident? Are you a foreign resident or are you on holiday or are you a local resident now? Well, if you're working and living locally, you're a local resident. And so anything you buy is not an export, right? But if you're a tourist who doesn't work in that country, who has a residence in another country, then everything you buy is an export. And there's one exception, and that's just student visas. If you happen to be a person whose visa says student, then we change completely the way we calculate. And then behind this is the fact that we don't really know what international students spend so we simply multiply the number of visas by this magic number that no one knows and the ABS won't tell me, which is an estimate from a different tourist survey of how much tourists spend, international tourists spend per night. And I don't know, you know, they just said it's, uh, it's not available for you. Sorry, I don't have that number. And I've reversed it out. And it's something like uh, $40,000, $45,000 per student per year um, is what that would be of their spending. And then, of course, all their student fees to education institutes, uh, universities or, or other count as well, uh, which are about 30,000 per student. So you actually get a number, which is 78,000 per year per foreign student, um, which is actually more than what a full-time employee can spend after tax, right? Because a full-time employee on 100,000 gets taxed 24,000, so they have 76,000 to spend. So because of all these assumptions and tricks, we're just literally saying that every student is worth more than a full-time, average full-time employee and all of that we're just going to put under the export label and the only reason we're doing it is because of an arbitrary decision that their visa is an exception to the normal residency rules when we calculate service exports. So that's the answer. And, you know, I had some back and forth with the ABS to, to get to the heart of that because it, the number is really high, right? Uh, it was $40 billion before COVID for 480,000 students. So that's, that's, that's 80 some, that, you know, you're talking 80,000 a student. You're like, that's, that seems like an awful lot. So, yeah, that's the sort of thing I do. I like to get really deep into the statistics uh, and where things are measured. And, you know, you'll see another one up there about inflation measurement, which is quite topical at the moment, uh, and how, for example, uh, used cars aren't in Australia and Australian inflation measurements, but are in um, the United States measurement. They're a huge part of what was driving inflation in the US, but couldn't drive inflation here because they're just not measured in the CPI. I'm going to ask you a, a very simple but a very complex three-letter question, which is why? 
What, 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 you know, if in doubt, check incentives. Is the ABS slash government incentivized to make education seem good? Are they just literally picking a number because it's easy and someone, for reasons of convenience, just picked $40,000 and said that'll do? Uh, why, why would the ABS be party to a, a, a view that the average international student was spending $78,000 worth of export revenue, export uh, services, to, to undertake education in Australia? Look, no, I, I think uh, you're right. There are broader political incentives. Um but they're not just, you know, it suits some political party when they're in power and they direct the ABS. Because there, there are, you know, every year international conferences on how to measure different things and all the statistical agencies get together and they they bash heads and they argue and they decide, right? Um, that And the Europeans do it, they standardise particular things and each country has certain exceptions for, for historical reasons. Um, so I think it's more that, uh, you know, Australia and some other areas, uh, the the education uh, sector has an incentive to lobby to make sure that they're being properly measured, right? Um, no one wants to be properly measured. They want to be advantageously <laughs> measured, don't they? Exactly, advantageously measured. <laughs> proper, proper for them, advantageous yeah, from a third, exactly. objective third-party yeah. perspective. And so, what I mean, what choice do you have? You're at the ABS, you go to these international conferences, the Europeans love their, you know, Asian and Middle Eastern students and their universities have an incentive and their governments want to start, you know, counting that and the Americans and the Canadians do. Like it's it's very much a soft influence over many years, not a, like an orchestrated uh, thing. Um, but my concern is not that we do it and that it's measured or it's this type of estimate. Like this is probably close to the economic activity associated with these people on student visas, right? My concern is this halo of it's a national good because it's an export that you get from a measure that is not exactly what people think it is, right? So there's a huge incentive to, you know, misrepresent things. And and almost the universities are inferring that, uh, you know, you should run your immigration policy through us so we can clip the ticket. Like, I th- that's almost where it ends up. Which is kind of, again, maybe, I don't know if it's a direct relation to the to the book Rigged, but certainly that, that just that very idea that... Uh, and it's always, you know, it's it, I do wonder that. And what I like about your thinking is... It's very easy in life to not even have necessarily the wrong incentives or to have only slightly miscued incentives, but that done over a long enough period of time with enough people ends up where we are. As you say, no no one specifically goes to a politician and says, look, I'm running the education sector. I'm going to get a bonus if I get some more export revenue. Can you please change some definitions? But it's enough people over enough periods of time, and I guess I'm thinking very clearly here of a parallel of enough lobbyists wandering into Parliament House in Canberra over and over and over again, those, those small incremental changes that seem like nothing at the time, but when you look back and think, how did we get here from there? Maybe, maybe that's kind of part of what's going on here. That's it, no, no one, no great big conspiracy, just the net result of lots of little movements in the in the same direction. Correct. It's, it's, it's small collective incentives at each interaction accumulating over time. And, you know, that's essentially what my book Rigged is about, <laughs> how networks of powerful mates rip off everyday Australians, kind of making the case that 
It is not a great conspiracy. This is the normal human outcome of repeated interactions where we learn collective incentives by favoring some, not favoring others over time. Like it's it's an inescapable part of the human psychology. I'm going to assume, again, my apologies for not having read the book, mate. I actually have literally bought it while you were chatting. There you go. I wanted to commit to it, so I've done it. Um, <laughs> but I am curious, does the book go into the potential solutions for the problem? You know, if you were to wave the magic wand and become the... Uh, uh, the great incentive reformer uh, for the Australian government or the person who gets to say, uh-uh, back on track here. Is, is, there, is there a solution? Are there a range of solutions or, or a series of things we could do to maybe correct some of that? I mean, th- there are once you have the political opportunity for change, right? So that's the key first step is you need sort of a critical mass of people with their political leverage who want to change things, which is not the normal the problem, right? situation, yeah, right? Yeah. This only comes periodically during wars, recessions, uh, very uh, fine political margins where a swing, uh, a swing uh, political party or minor party gets something as a, as a trade-off for something else. So these, the incentive to change is very low. But mechanically, what you do is, is not very difficult, right? So if there's sort of no competition, like in the universities, we kind of open, we try and get more competition. We try and get new institutions to sort of um, push out the old ones. And where there is, um, you know, options for uh, even public agencies to compete in the private sector to sort of almost... Uh, Get, get a little wriggle on. So, for example, I'm thinking in the book I talk about uh, small councils that give up their sort of road construction uh, departments or arms and then they're at the whim of like the two local companies that build roads and, of course, they collude over time even without written agreements or explicit agreements and it's very hard. So the, the point is if you had your own uh, internal organisation, at, at the very least, even if you are um, completely dysfunctional, uh, that provides a limit to how much the other two guys can rip you off. So so it, it's not about um, getting rid of, you know, it's not, it's not about the big, you know, the government should just do it. It's about the, the sort of um, understanding that um, there, are, there are good things about how competition works, but there's also these inadvertent collusion elements to it uh, as well. And, you know... That's that's sort of all there all there is to it. The other is like pricing, pricing political favors. So, for example, when you you know going around and upzoning or you're building railway lines to certain people's subdivisions, you want to sort of charge them for that either with, you know, a, a betterment tax, which is like a, a levy on additional property rights, or through land taxes and things. So, so the other thing is is trying to have, trying to price decisions as well as as adding competition, and sort of the last. The last one is is randomizing decision makers, right? So these collusive groups form over time because they get to interact with each other again and again. But if you can randomize decision makers and like a jury in a court, right? We don't tr- we wouldn't trust professional juries to put organized criminal <laughs> gangs away, right? That's right. Because they'd be corrupted in- instantly, right? Yeah. So what we do is randomize them. And so you can do that sort of thing for key decisions. And, and there's lots of citizens' juries being tried. And I think it was Allegra Spender saying we should get people together. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I would almost go so far as to say, well, the upper house of parliament should be a random jury. It should just be filled of people who get a random letter in the mail and say, here you go, come and be uh, the upper house, because you get a really good representative picture rather than... Um, 
this party machine and these years of, of networking putting the options in front of people at the ballot. So, the, I mean, that's a huge change, but you can do this at different levels, right? You can do this with local uh, health boards or something like that or local university boards or, and just um, sort of introduce a bit more randomization that creates that opportunity for change and that desire for change because the people making the decisions get it. And, and of course, it's very risky for uh, those with power to, to outsource it to, to the average person. Um, but mechanically, that, that's another thing you could do. I want, I want to touch on your competition comments before, mate, because I think I, I've said for a while that when there's lots of different players you find, once you get to oligopoly-type situations, and Woolies and Coles or, or maybe even uh, Qantas and Virgin are a better example, where... You don't have, you don't need to collude because it's in when there's only two of you, it's in each of your best interests to to effectively engage in yield maximization where you simply say, I could add more seats, but if I did, I would have to sell them cheaper to do that. If I constrain my own supply, which is completely purely self-interest, not not collusion, and the other guy realizes also in their interest to do exactly the same thing, it's it's not even collusion in any in any definitional sense, but you end up with two parties acting in the pure self-interest, but in the same way which completely destroys the idea of competition in a market. Yeah, so I'm totally with you there. The, the, the trick to competition is not about how many th- players there are. It's about how easy it is for a new player to come in from a different sector. And um, it's, it's quite interesting. So economists um, have tried to, you know, they, they've got the right idea that, you know, l- the competition is a good force, right? It keeps things in check. Um, it, it, it provides incentives to do better products because if you can do it and they can't, then you get ahead, right? Like this, they've got this right idea, but they've oversimplified it to a numerical uh, eight eight companies good, two companies bad, right? Yeah, yeah. And whereas if you go into the uh, the sort of biology and evolution literature, so evolutionary biology is essentially competition, right? It's exactly the same modeling that economists use for species competition, right? But they know in biology that trial and error gets you to a collusive outcome when there's no free entry, no matter how many players there are. So if you had 20 companies, and you know that that's true because, for example, if we have taxi licenses, right? You can have 50 different taxi license owners, but because there's no free entry into taxis, they're going to find the monopoly outcome, even though there's 50 different companies own a small part of it. And that's true with property, right? You can't just build buildings without first buying the license in terms of the property. So we should be more aware uh, that it's not the numerical number of things, it's about the entry, right? That, you know, someone can show up and start a road building company in North Queensland when there's only two companies and they know when they're bidding for the next job that the guy who makes, you know, the quarry guy might want to bid as well, right? So it's, it's, it's a little bit more subtle and it's a little bit less, um, it's not quite as strong a force as we think at all times in all places. So if we think about supermarkets, uh, the Reserve Bank did some studies. They reckon... Um, uh, grocery prices fell 15% in the first five years Aldi came compared to what they would have otherwise been. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty old research yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. There's, what, 700 Aldis or <laughs> 2,000 Aldis. I don't know what the number yeah, is. Yeah. but and, they, and, so, and then we got Costco coming as well, right? And so the solution there was that. But it took, 
you know, a couple of decades, this is not instant or automatic for foreign companies to take the risk, right? And once the first one does, the next one comes and they realise it's not as risky as they thought uh, and it's all possible. And it's interesting when Aldi started that um, there were uh, agreements written into leases at uh, shopping malls. I'm not sure if you're aware where, you know, the anchor tenant could could uh, exercise control to avoid a competitor supermarket showing up. And, and it took the ACCC to sort of ban those types of contracts so that Aldi could be in the same, super, same shopping centre as another supermarket. Um, they said they're anti-competitive. So... You know, I, I think there's good things the ACCC does like that um, and they definitely, you know, have probably a more subtle understanding than your average economist out in the press and what you might read about. Um, but I still think, um, you know, sometimes we can accelerate that process with a public um, option a little bit more or, um, you know, a variety of different ways um, because it is a force for good. Mate, I want to get to a couple of big topics now. Uh, if, if our listeners have heard our conversation on super, they know my view, they know your view, but some won't have done that. Uh, and this is one of those topics you and I do disagree on, so, so I'm going to give you the floor. Uh, tell me exactly why superannuation is such a terrible thing. So basically, the way I start is what's the objective? The objective is to provide income in retirement. Okay. Why do we need that? Well, the rich people don't need it. Everyone above a certain thing, it's no big deal for them. Okay, everyone who's not wealthy has this problem that they're not wealthy when they're working and they're also not wealthy when they're too old to work. So how do we fix it? And super says, well, what we'll do is we'll create a system that amplifies those same inequalities during work that were inadequate to fund everyone's retirement and what we'll do is we'll amplify them later in your life by uh, compounding them through the super fund. And so you end up with a case where the majority of the benefits of the compounding and the super and the tax breaks go to those who don't never needed it in the first place. And those who um, really need the income support in retirement can't save enough anyway and still need the age pension. And then you've got this tiny sliver in the middle of people who maybe just get pushed over the hump and get a part pension instead of a full pension. Now, the question is, well, why would you... Uh, create so many tens of billions of dollars of tax breaks to get that little sliver from the pension to the super when for the size of that tax break you could double the whole age pension to everybody <laughs> right so the you know and the way i also see it is that the compulsion to put the money away to compulsorily remove some of your income during your work is uh, is administratively the same as the tax, right? I can't get it back. I've had to pay someone else. The fact that that other person happens to buy BHP and Apple shares and treasury bonds with it, I don't care. I don't, it's, you know, I could pay tax and the government could have a fund or not have a fund and it would come back when I'm old, right? So it's of no consequence. And I think some of the motive, so that's the general gist. And, and if you're already poor during your working life, it seems silly to make you poorer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're yeah, young and yeah. working so you can be richer later when you've got the age pension. And there's quite a lot of young households, especially people with lots of children when they're young and, you know, they've got only one worker who are much poorer then in their 20s when they'll be when they're 60 and on the age pension, assuming they own their own house, another thing we might get to later. Um, so, so there's that. 
as well. And I think uh, the super almost tricks everyone into thinking we can solve this without any sort of redistributive effort. Um, whereas I think just do the redistribution, the tax system is very efficient and the pension system just hardly employs anyone and the overheads are like one to two percent in management costs um, for, for such a huge range of high needs sort of um, uh, retirees. So that, that's my sort of big picture view. Tell me what you would do differently if you, if if we made your treasurer tomorrow. You said first thing I'm going to do is destroy the, the super system. Second thing I'm going to replace it with X. What what is what does X look like? Oh no, I, I think you I think the pension does automatically X. I don't think you need anything. I think people just can get all their income from their job, and instead of going into bank account super bank account personal, it just all goes into bank account personal, and then. Uh, out of your super fund, you have a limit, say, uh, five or $10,000 a year that anyone can withdraw up to until all the funds are drained, which honestly wouldn't take long because I think the median balance is only 17000 So if it was 10000 a year, uh, in two years, you'd have far less than half the number of accounts left anyway. Um, so that, that's what you would do. And what you would find is... Uh, I think the next sort of downturn is a good time to do that because like during COVID, when you um, take that money and spend it in the economy, it's really, really good for, you know, keeping people employed and, and businesses operating. So that's how I would do it. I'd just to, uh, remove the apparatus entirely. Nice. Uh, I, I will say for the record, I, I disagree as our listeners probably know and they can go back and listen to the other episodes. So I'm not going to have the conversation <laughs> or the debate with you here. I'm just going to get your thoughts because yeah. that's what we're here for. Put a link to it. Yeah, no, it was a good chat. It was. It was great. Hey, what did what did Paul Keating get wrong? I mean, you know, either it was bad incentives or bad intentions, or good intentions misplaced. Um, obviously, we, you know, we didn't have super. It wasn't like we inherited it. And we kind of kept the status quo because we thought it was a good idea. We we actually said, literally said, let's actually change things. Let's put a system in place for retirement savings. What 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 was the wrong thinking there in your mind? I, I'm not asking you to criticize anybody in particular. I'm just curious as to at some point someone said, let's replace this or add add super to this thing. Obviously, you think erroneously. What did they get wrong? I, th- I think we need to realize how different the conversation was then. Now, there's a great um, Jolly Swagman podcast episode with Ken Henry that goes for four and a half hours. Now, you can definitely listen to it on double speed. But one thing Ken Henry was around back then. He's he's a you know former senior bureaucrat. He's been involved in all these economic reforms in Australia. But what he said then, and what, what I had also learned prior to this, that one of the motivations for super or for a compulsory savings scheme was the current account deficit in Australia. There was this idea that we were importing more than we were exporting and that this was bad. So foreigners were accumulating local assets uh, as sort of payment uh, for those extra imports. And Paul Keating, so the erroneous part was he thought that the current account deficit was determined by savings. He thought causality went from savings to the current account, right? Which is not true. And of course, no one cares about the current account anymore. Mate, uh, let's, let's uh, before we go on, I do want to go to housing, but a couple of quick questions on this kind of concept. I guess the first one, uh, I'm not going to argue about it, but my one of my, cons- one of my views is that asking a future generation to pay for our then needs because we happen to be old at that point if we have the ability as a as a generation as an individual to save or to to put aside for that the idea of you know putting some nuts away for winter 
is always something that's kind of struck me. Just just morally, we're talking about intergenerational inequality. Um, is, is is that just an, a, a nice idea that doesn't have any 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 uh, ballast in, in economic thinking, or is there a way to think about that differently to superannuation? Okay, so that's really interesting. You said putting in away the nuts for the winter because. In the economic model world, saving is literally buying a new car today and putting it in a shed for when you're retired. Putting all the canned beans and soup in the shed. So it's literally taking today's resources and using them in the future, right? But that's not what superannuation does, right? Superannuation changes who owns different things in the economy today. And when I retire in the future, I definitely buy a car from the future society and eat the food the future society built, right? So it's the same food, fuel, clothes, holidays that are being consumed in the future, whether it's funded from super, which is a claim on other people's sort of spending, or from taxes, which is a different claim on other people's spending in the future. And I often say to people who say that, oh, but what about the power of compound interest? You know, that's the secret. And I just say, well, you know, the tax system gets all the compounding of the economy as a whole because the economy is compounded, it's growing in a compounded way. There's no sort of separate compounding that the financial sector does separate from the economy broadly. So if you think compounding is the answer, then tax is also the answer because we're going to grow our ability to tax in a compounded way. So that's my answer to that. Nice, thank you. So then I wanted to take a slight tangent if we get to housing, because we will get there. Um, I'll ask you about a sovereign wealth fund because it has similar kind of machinations, at least mathematically, if not morally. Uh, and again, I, I come from a very moral view, not that I necessarily have, have the, the right morals or the only morals, but my, my approach is moral as much as financial, which is we dig up a, a, a piece of gold or a ton of iron ore or we drill a well uh, to take out of the ground a resource that spent hundreds of millions of years being created. And we say, thank you, every ancestor ever, and the people, you know, the animals before the ancestors, and the amoebas before the animals, and we say, thanks, we'll dig that up now and we'll use it now and we'll spend it now and the future be damned. And my, my personal view is that if we have a national collective asset group, say, you know, all the oil, oil or, or iron or gold in the ground, that we should dig that up for sure. And, and as long as we do it environmentally friendly or just, you know, responsibly, uh, recognize value for that. But also, I think we have a moral responsibility to leave most of, if not all of the, the capital value of that asset in the ground or sorry, not in the ground for future generations in a different form, i.e. a monetary form, rather than saying, thank you for the good fortune, I'm going to do it before you take it, I'm going to, I'm going to spend it at the kids so you can't do it. Um, is, there, is there a, well, so firstly, economically, is there a justification for a sovereign wealth fund? And then morally, how do we think about intergenerational equality in that sense? So I totally understand the logic or the moral case of there's a once off chance, right, of getting this out of the ground, right? And so we should spread that gain into the future, not just today. Makes total sense. If I took that gold out of the ground and sold it and built a house, that would be one way of getting the gains in the future because I've built that house and that house lasts 100 years or have long it lasts. In fact, everything I spend on, my clothes might last eight years, right? We'll spread that out into the future as a future gain right? 
the sovereign wealth, as in buying assets from a different country, the logic of that is the same as this current account deficit management. It's a way to manage the currency by accumulating other currency assets, right? While everyone wants your currency to buy those minerals. And so the Norwegians or, you know, the Saudis, they want to make sure um, that they're just, they're not um, de- not uh, they're able to manage their currency with these huge flows of uh, of exchanges to get to get those things. So you know the Norwegians is really a, a sort of currency management tool. But remember, all they're doing is buying the assets on the Australian stock market or the Australian treasury bonds. The same sort of things. They're just in a different country or they're recorded in a different currency. Um, so I, I think you're right, and I think the other point that comes out of what you said, you you inadvertently said it, I think, was that you can leave it in the ground. I mean, that is how we sort of manage over time the benefits of a resource is we have like there's a kind of an optimal rate at which you extract each year so that you benefit over many decades from one resource. Uh, And so I think there's a a natural economic incentive to do that, to optimise that lifetime of those resources and and spread out the gains. And, you know, if prices go up in the future, then, you know, we probably went the wrong speed. We went too fast before. But if prices go down, we're like, well, we should have probably got it out quicker before. We don't really know the true answer. But at any point in time, um, you know, the the owners of those resources are making that trade-off almost on our behalf. And the saving for the future, the way I like to think about saving for the future is you save for the future by building stuff that lasts, by building buildings, building roads, building infrastructure, building all the public services. That is a form of saving. It looks like spending because spending is saving. But when you spend on things that last, that is what economic saving is. It's a bit like putting those cans of food and the brand new car in the shed for 20 years. Well, if I build a bridge today in 20 years, guess what? I've got a bridge in 20 years, even though I have to spend a lot of money today to get it. Even on the homepage, we've got the Auckland myth. There is no evidence that upzoning increased housing construction. We have a natural experiment in excess housing supply, the great housing supply contradiction. Uh, You've written one called Housing Confusion, Builders versus Property Owners and Building versus Planning Approval. This is a massive issue. It, It might be the largest... Maybe, maybe, maybe aside from inflation, maybe not even because inflation is going to go at some point and the housing issues will probably remain. Um, this is one of the big, if not the biggest, economic and political challenge, I think, of, of 2023 and beyond. Uh, obviously a passion area for you, obviously something you've, you've done a deep and wide amount of research on. I'm not going to ask you, a, I'm not going to ask you about any of those particular articles, although I'm sure they'll come to, to bear in the answer. What is the right housing policy? <laughs> nice easy question. Okay. The right housing policy involves, uh, in my view, a universal non-market option. And that's it. Well, however you organise it, if every resident in your country has the option to rent or buy, occupy a home that is far below the market price, the rental market or the asset market, then... They will choose that if the market's not working for them or they'll choose the market if the market's working for them. And you will basically copy the sort of many of the European models of social housing or the Singapore model of sort of public home ownership and you will essentially have nothing left to complain about and and your barbecue topics will change dramatically. <laughs> um, so it's more, more interesting and useful than property, hey? 
Yeah, so I was, into, I was speaking to a, a guy from Singapore who's, who's come to Australia as an economist and he just cannot believe the obsession with housing. He said, if you go to Singapore, if someone won the lotto, they would start a business. That would be their dream. And here, it would just be buy a big house. Buy a big house. <laughs> right? And he said, yeah. and no one would even talk about it because they have this public home ownership option. So there's nothing to think about. You either take it or you rent somewhere else. There's no big deal. As soon as you're 21, if you're in a relationship, you're like as a couple, you can apply. And within two years on average, you've got a house for life at some, you know, for most people, there's no out-of-pocket expenses because they can actually use their compulsory retirement savings to pay the deposit and the mortgage. So it's just a non-issue. It's like shoelaces. No one talks about it, <laughs> right? Because there's no, like, yeah. you know, yeah. you can yeah. imagine. And, yeah. and I think that's funny because in healthcare, right, we've decided everybody gets a universal non-market option. And if that doesn't work for you, you can go pay any specialist for your heart surgery you want, but here's an option too. And we don't have the barbecue conversations that you would have in the US about what it cost you to go to hospital last time, right? It's just not, we just expect it. It's non, it's not an issue. So that is my sort of big picture solution. And I think everything else is a little bit of a, um, can we get the market to work? Can we get this property monopoly to act in a completely different way to how it's ever operated in hundreds of years of history? And I and I, I love to quote, I don't know if I've quoted it to you, but I've probably quoted it to a few other people. Um, Charles Darwin, the, the father of evolution, who visited Sydney in 1832, so near on 200 years ago, in the HMS Beagle. This is the first paragraph of his diary when he arrived in Sydney. And I'll quote, the number of large houses just finished and others building is truly surprising. Nevertheless, everyone complains of the high rents and difficulty in procuring a house. <laughs> so either that means we've always had something to worry about or we've never had anything to worry about. I assume you're going to say it's the uh, the former. Yeah. We, we get really sucked into the media cycle in property. So let me give you an example. Uh, in the second half of 2022 in Sydney, rents were both lower than they were in 2017 but rising at their fastest rate. So they weren't abnormally high. It's just that the 2017 to 19 period, rents fell. And then they fell again in 2020. And so they're catching up on this accumulated decline and the income growth. So they were rising at a record rate, which is obviously very disruptive to the market. But as in terms of levels and income, they actually weren't as tight as they were in 2016 or 17. And that's remarkable, mate, because that's where your insights are, are super useful and also cut through some of the rubbish that we go on with. And I think you're right about disruption. We mistake disruption for genuine hardship, right? And I think that's part of the challenge is we kind of go, hang on, they're going up a lot, therefore that's terrible. And you say, well, it was not terrible if you had, if you, if, if you had a great three years and then in the next two years, you have to make up for the average five-year growth. You should be saying, oh, thank God we had a great three years. Now, by the way, that sounds like interest rates right now. Thank God we had a great three years. Things were really cheap for a while. Gee, we were lucky. We say, we took that for granted, but now it's going up and back to some normal level. All of a sudden, the world's against us. Everything sucks and this is terrible. Exactly. <laughs> like Once you've got, <laughs> once you expand your perspective past the current media cycle, right? So in 2018, there were headlines, double whammy for housing, rents falling at record price and houses. What's in store for Sydney investors, right? Like we just 
just you forgot that quickly. Forgot it. Yeah. Totally forgot, yeah. right? And so, yeah, this longer-term perspective. So I, I just want to make two comments. One, if we go even longer, so the 200-year perspective, what we have is essentially market cycles, market cycles, then mid-20th century, heavy government intervention, lots of non-market options, 15% of new houses, public housing, all of them eventually getting sold to their tenants for, for essentially credited previous rents. Uh, we boost home ownership from 50% to 72%. And then we slowly unwind all that and we go back to the market outcome. So your 200 year, it looks like a straight line of market outcome, a big dip in like the Second World War and a rise in 1970. And then and we're, we're adjusting back to normal at the moment. So that's sort of, that's how I see it. And now luckily we have bigger, better houses than ever. We're on average richer. We don't have 7.3 people per dwelling when the average dwelling's 80 square metres and doesn't even have a sealed floor. Like the slums of the 1920s and 30s were the, the subject of huge political intrigue. And, and one of the reasons that the first public intervention started was because all the diseases of the slums couldn't be kept there. They kept escaping to the, to the healthy, <laughs> right. proper people, right? So we had to do something about that housing. Respectable society. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So that's sort of a, an even broader term. But yeah, you're, you're right. that So Brisbane, um, I'll give you a few anecdotes. So I, I've got a neighbour in my street who sold his house a couple of years ago and he was renting it for $800 a week in 2012 and $600 a week in 2020. Right, so that's near on ten years with, you know, twenty percent decline, um, in nominal terms, right? Uh, and of course, it's bounced right back up now. Um, and then, you know, the bounce. Uh, I got another mate who was paying five hundred dollars a week for quite a few years, and then it jumped to seven hundred all in one go. Um, but of course, it didn't go up for the last four years, and so you're like, well, yeah, okay, that's a huge jump. Uh, and it might come down again, right? So people were negotiating their rents down. So that's some perspective. The other thing that's in the news is this rent control idea. And I just want to quickly quickly share my two cents on that. And that is, it is really okay to smooth out these rapid adjustment periods with limits on how fast rents can go, right? A lot of countries do this. They index link rent increases so that if there is a sudden change, so rents don't just usually rise smoothly, they usually plateau and then they have a strong period, then a, you know, it changes over the long run. You can just smooth out a 20% increase over three years at 7% a year or do it all at once. And landlords actually get this type of smoothing in their land taxes, right? Because because your land tax value is the average of the last three years' value. So if your land value goes up 50% or so it goes up 60%, that next year, your land tax bill doesn't go up 60%, it goes up 20% because we're averaging that over the three years. And so I just think, well, if it's good enough to smooth out the shock cash flows for landlords, <laughs> then we can certainly have CPI plus whatever. Yeah. And so the Netherlands has CPI plus 3%, the French have 3 CPI plus 2 or something. ACT has CPI times 1.1 for ongoing contracts, but not um, fixed period ones. But, you know, some variation of that just seems to me a way to modernise tenancy laws so that these adjustment periods are not as disruptive. So you're not capping rents. You're just simply saying whatever whatever makeup you're doing, you have to do over a, a smooth... It's just, yeah, it's just a s smoothing off requirement so that, you know, rents aren't going up 40% in some places. If you, you go to the max this year and the max next year, maybe that tenant will move. Um, but... 
And again, the cost of that is is very small, right? Because if you look historically, it would have only applied in the last year out of the last 14 years, right? That that limit would have only been binding on rents once every 14 years and you would have had to smooth that one big adjustment over a couple of years. So I think that sort of thing is reasonable, but you can't really have a reasonable conversation about it because the property lobby just unreasonably panics uh, about such minor changes. And I think it's not very good for their long run credibility. I think that's absolutely true of most lobby groups, particularly the property lobby. What, um, Fair point. <laughs> I, when it comes to property, I, I guess the big... I, I, okay, let, let, me throw you, let me throw you a thought. I just want, I want your feedback. So I did some numbers really like you'd hate it because it was just super back of the envelope, right? You're a proper economist and I'm just a, a hack who does some numbers in Excel every now and again. Um, I, if you look at, so, so over, it was something like 30 odd years and I, I basically looked at the combination of the LVR changes in other words, loan to valuation ratio for, for borrowers, the fact that we had increasing numbers of and value of second incomes in households. Uh, and the secular fall in interest rates and kind of looked at the proportion of the, the house price increase explained by those three criteria for those who kind of want to look at house prices as it always doubles every seven years, so it's always going to, so just buy property because it's always going to go up. And I kind of went, well, it was something like, and I don't, I don't have the numbers in front of me, mate, I should have, but something like 75 or 80% of the increase could be really back in the envelope explained by those three components. And I just, I, I wonder if, a, that's too simple. I'm sure it is, but but to what degree? But also, too, what what that kind of if we're in that kind of not catch up phase, but almost a gross up phase, if you like, of of bringing those things through into capital values. Uh, I'm 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 mindful of two things. I guess one one is how how real is that? The second is my real concern for all it's worth is we we took women's liberation and moved towards more equal pay. And we basically said, you can have the freedom to do anything. And then within a decade or two, we said, <laughs> actually, no, you have to work now because otherwise there's no way you can afford a house on one income. Uh, where to start? Okay. So I think I'm still looking at the number of income earners per household historically because um, if you go back pre-Second World War, there were many income earners because the oldest children were old and working when they're 12 or 14, right? And when there's seven people per household and cousins and uncles, right, you could have three or four workers per household. So it's again, it's this sort of mid-20th century anomaly in the market where, and even then I'm not so sure um, because just household size was so much bigger. And yes, a lot of it's children, but older children and uncles and grandparents and, you know, grandparents were younger as well. So uh, that's something I'm still looking at. Uh, so, and on the second income earner, like it's still that rents are on average in the private market were 20% of um, 20% of gross household income in 1990, now 20% of gross household income in 2021, right? They've bounced around slightly. And of course, there's measurement error in the census and there's measurement error in the spending survey. It's only got 6,000 people in it, or I think it's got 12,000 people in it now, uh, households. Um, but it's essentially a straight line. You can go back to 1907 uh, to uh, – so, so there was a 1912 rents inquiry in Sydney. And again, they <laughs> – Nothing changes. Yeah, nothing changes. And there was a 1907 rents inquiry or there was a, a court case about fair work because there was a new rule that you must pay a fair wage. And so rent – the cost of rent was one of those considerations. And again, it was about 20% 
uh, it was about, it was about, sorry, it was actually about um, 28% of an individual wage uh, in 1907 in Victoria. So um, look, it's been pretty flat, <laughs> the rent to income. So when you add another income to a household, um, it's still at most 20% of that income is soaked up in rent and the rest is on other things, right? So it's it's a bit like, pay, it's just like getting a pay rise, right? Now, it, it, on, on the two workers, you know, I have other opinions about, you know, the incentives for women to work and childcare and stuff because we've got this weird economic um, sort of mindset that specialization is really good. Specialization is great. That's what the economy is about. Oh, but don't specialize in your household and have one worker <laughs> and one person stay at home. Completely. No, no, no. You've got to both work and you've got to both do housework and you've got to both look after the kids. I'm like, so we don't like specialization now? Like, <laughs> like what is it? Like, surely if I'm good at mowing, I shouldn't go 50-50 yep. with my wife, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yes. So, and it's going to be the case that when the kids are young, she's very good at looking after them. It might be the case when my boys are teenagers now that I take them to all the sport, right? And I coach the team and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so that's my, my broader perspective. And, and so, and the other interesting thing, of course, is if you've got a, uh, with childcare and the debate, you've got to like childcare work at a kid ratio of six. And if the average woman of childbearing age has two kids in childcare, then one out of three (laughs) women going into the workforce is actually caring for someone else's kids. You're just formalizing it. Anyway, that's that. So your main point then was that price rises can be explained by interest rates, household income, and lending, basically, that households can now borrow more of the proportion. And I I don't think that's simple at all. That's almost 100% how I think of it. That's exactly what it is. How could it be yeah, anything right else? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. because I, I guess the way I see it is the rental market has its equilibrium, right? It's roughly 20%. Now, there's a spatial dimension to that because obviously the inner suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne are very, very expensive and the outer suburbs of Brisbane and Adelaide and whatever are very cheap. There's a spatial dimension, but on average 20%. And that 20% then is the the income of the asset, right? Yeah, That's yeah. the cash flow yeah. of the asset. And that asset's going to be capitalized at a rate reflecting prevailing returns in the economy. So if we're getting lower interest rates, then you can rent mm-hmm. more money for the rent of your house, right? Instead of renting the house from a landlord, you rent money from the bank and be your own landlord. And that's why we saw such a big, uh, uh, a big amount of first home buying during COVID when, you know, renters could borrow two percent but they're living in a house where the landlord gets a four percent yield and they're like well i can buy that and save myself money by renting money and so we actually saw um double the rate of first home buying for two years during covid um so that's why we're seeing a bit of an overhang now of declining home buying well that's just because we did four years worth of home buying in two years and so, where is the property? Last question, probably. Where where is the property market now? Is is there a, is there a property crisis? Is there a rental crisis? Uh, you know, if we if we allow for the fact that a lot of the growth is just a catch up growth, and as much as you, you, I like I love the word you use disruption, which is right, right? That's the behavioural element of otherwise mathematical economics, which is just it actually does matter because people's lives change and they their their incomes don't grow, but their consumption grows. They all of a sudden cut back. Um, where, where, where does that leave us, mate? Is, is there a rental crisis? Is there a housing crisis? Is there an affordability problem? And if there is, what, what's, the, what's the size of, of the issue we're facing? 
Yeah. Look, I, I think I think we we've sort of converged on the same sort of thing that it's it's the adjustment that is the crisis. So a lot of people are being forced to move because they they thought they'd live somewhere and pay four hundred a week. Now they're paying five fifty or six hundred. <laughs> And, and their income hasn't grown. But someone else's income has, and that's why they want to rent in your place for, for more, right? So yes, I, I agree it's a disruption. Now, if we look to the US, for example, rents were rising in the US by 16% per year, cross-nationally, 12 months ago. Since uh, May last year, they have grown 0%, right? So they've had their adjustment. They, they did it all. Uh, we might have that adjustment, but it might take a little bit longer because we've got such high inf- um, immigration in certain areas and that takes time to filter through, right? So if you think about it, we have about forty or 50,000 dwellings advertised each month, right? Uh, so that's forty or 50,000 households leaving one house and trying to move to another one. And in that same month, we're getting something like six or 8,000 new households trying to get into the rental market and squeeze into those same dwellings. And so it's going to be very tight. But over time, what you'll find is people will reorganize their household size, take on more people, move back home, delay moving out, and, and that will seep through uh, just as it, as it, as it has in the, in the US, for example, when, where rent's not rising. So I think 2024, we'll find that uh, rents are sort of uh, have stopped rising. I suspect we're in for a surprise blow-off price boom. Uh, I've been reading up on some historical booms, especially the 1880s Victorian land boom, and they all thought the boom was over in 1884. You know, people were getting squeezed, it was all over. Then it picked up again after a 12-month lull for another two years, and uh, and things just doubled in price, yields, uh, so the... Uh, depositors at banks were getting over 6% interest and yields on housing were down at 2.5%, right? So that's two and a half <laughs> times more than the gross yield of a house you can get with your money in the bank and prices were still rising. So I, I'm wary that we're, we might be in that phase of the cycle where it just becomes all psychological and, and herd mentality. That's definitely a possibility um, and I just... Look, I don't know what the future holds. I just don't want people to go around thinking the end is near, prices are about to crash when when history shows that, okay, that's one possibility, but history also shows you can have a two-year period of, of unprecedented growth that doesn't make sense to anybody uh, except those who s- seem to tell them stories, the buyers who have told themselves a story why it makes sense. Um, so that's the other thing I think I would... Um, have in the back of my mind as I keep an eye on the market. Fascinating, mate. We're almost done. I, I, I'm going to ask you a very open question as we as we wrap up, which is, what haven't I asked you about that you have a controversial opinion on that you think people should hear? I don't know how controversial it is to be pro-nuclear anymore, okay. but it's one of those things I've changed my mind on. It's one of those things where I used to just be like, oh, you know, I, I'm a bit of a greenie, I'm a bit of an environmentalist, therefore nuclear must be bad. And then, of course... You travel the world, you read, and, and you, you do like I was talking in my PhD. You're like, is, am I just saying this? <laughs> and then you realize that, you know, for example, I was catching the train in Switzerland and I'm like, oh, what's that? Oh, that's the nuclear plant. I'm like, no one cares. There's just a whole beautiful mountain village around this. It's not very big. It doesn't look particularly uh, like as any more ugly than any <laughs> other industrial shed. Yeah. And, uh, and no one cares. It's prime real estate. I was just like, 
huh, same in Japan. No one, no one, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just one of those things I've, I've changed my view on, um, which probably was controversial sort of five or 10 years ago when I was changing my view, but it's not so much now, I guess. Mate, uh, you have written a book uh, called Rigged. There's another one coming out that I'm looking forward to hearing more about. How else can people uh, keep in touch with you, hear more from you? So my website is fresheconomicthinking.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter there. And Twitter is where I'm quite active, at Dr. Cameron Murray, so D-R, doctor, uh, all one word, no spaces, underscores or anything like that. Do that. Seriously, listeners, follow Cameron. He is a very, very interesting thinker, smart bloke, has lots of great evidence-based ideas. Even if you don't agree with him, I agree with him a lot. I disagree with him sometimes. Uh, Always worthwhile. You will learn something. You'll be much, much better for it. Dr. Cameron Murray, thank you for joining me for The Good Oil. It was great to chat again, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, and imaged by Link Kelly.